We're going to continue our series of studies this evening, thinking of the covenants of God's Word, the covenants and the covenant relationships and the covenant pictures and symbols which act for us as a visual aid. And one this evening that will be our focus is the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Lord's Table, whichever you wish to call it, the Lord's Supper. And our title tonight is The Covenant Renewed. That's what we do when we come to the Lord's table. This was what the Lord Jesus said. We'll read these words. No need to turn to them now. He took bread, he gave thanks and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of of me likewise also this cup is the new testament or covenant in my blood which is shed for you this is a commandment if you're a child of god tonight you are commanded to do this do what christ was instituting when he came with his disciples by special invitation to institute the Lord's Supper. The Passover would be no more and the Lord's Supper was instituted. Well, just to come back to our subject of covenants, a covenant to remind you is an undertaking made between two parties for the benefit of each other. And we've thought of that great covenant of redemption which will and has been accomplished. Why? Because it was between God the Father and God the Son. And they cannot lie. And Christ has died. All that needs to happen now is that his children, his lambs, are gathered together. The covenant of works. It was almost dead before it began because it was a covenant made between God and man. And we didn't and we cannot keep it. None of us can live a perfect life and that's what the covenant of works said. You need to obey to live. Well, we thought of baptism as well, but tonight we come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper has been called visible words for us to see Christ. Not pictures of Christ, but visible words, the bread and the wine, they are emblems reminding us of what Christ has done when he came to die and rise again. In his death, all our debts have been repaid by the only one that could repay them. They've been cleared. They've been paid off. In his resurrection, we have eternal life as Christ rose again. And so we think of how much we owe when we come to the Lord's table. We cannot possibly repay and yet we remind ourselves that we do have an obligation to obey, to love, to be in covenant relationship one with the other. And as we come to the Lord's table, our key point tonight is we renew our covenant. We come and we make our pledge once more, I will obey, 
I will love. I will love each other within the family that the Lord has put us in. And we renew that covenant relationship every time we come to worship in a sense. We do that, but when we come to the Lord's table, we have these very powerful emblems, which for us are a blessing physically to visualise aspects of the Lord's life and his death and his shed blood, but also spiritually, far, far more. As we think of those things which are intangible, that we cannot see the cost, the suffering, the giving, the sacrifice of Christ. But what I want to do tonight, and I don't know whether you'll have done this ever before, but to trace the beginning of the Lord's table right back in Genesis. So please turn with me. I think there's a number of scriptures that really are quite wonderful when we see what they're pointing towards. Genesis chapter 31. This might initially seem slightly obscure, but I think you'll see in Jacob and Laban, there is the beginnings of the elements of what the Lord's table will eventually become. Genesis chapter 31. And just to give you some background, Jacob, the patriarch, the line of Christ in that godly line, he and his father-in-law, Laban, for 20 years they've been at loggerheads with each other. One has deceived the other. Jacob has laboured to wait for his wife-to-be and then he's been deceived. He's had his wages changed ten times. And so the two of them, they're not reconciled. Well, let's read from verse 44. This is quite striking. It's covenant language. Genesis 31, verse 44. Jacob is very fearful and he comes before Laban and Laban says this, Now therefore come thou, let us make a covenant, I and thou, Laban and Jacob, and let it be for a witness between me and thee. And Jacob took a stone and set it up for a pillar. And Jacob said unto his brethren, Gather stones, and they took stones, and they made an heap, and they did eat there upon the heap, Laban. He's just previously said to Jacob, These daughters, they're mine. These animals, they're mine. My children, they're mine. He's protesting that it's his possession. And the two of them, there's animosity, great animosity between them. And yet the Lord leads them to come together. Jacob is so fearful. He doesn't know what Laban will do. Laban can't justify his terrible actions in moving the goalposts and changing the rules again and again. He can't condemn Jacob either because Jacob has been faithful despite his weak faith. Jacob has been faithful and he's waited and he's waited. And so Laban doesn't admit his fault, but they come together. This is important. 
There's been animosity. There's been division. There's been deception. There's been sin. But now peace. Peace is to be made. An altar is to be set up. A memorial is to be made. They're to put stones one on top of the other for a pillar. And there are to be witnesses there to witness of their coming together. The covenant is made. It's between two weak people. Two people that both have a track record of deception. But now there's to be friendship. The animosity is to be put to one side. The two are to come together. Verse 48, Laban said, This heap is to be a witness between me and thee this day. Therefore was the name of it called Galid and Mizpah, another name for watch. For he said, The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent from one another. So they're together, they're coming together. There's peace between them. Did you notice it said in verse 46, they did eat there. This place that's significant, where the memorial is laid up, where an altar is raised, where peace has been made. And they mark it by eating together. They break bread together, you might say. They show cordiality and fellowship one to the other. And this is not some casual thing. Twenty years they've been opposed to each other. But they gather witnesses and they make sure that there's a big enough pile of stones so that every time they go back they will remember. This is the early indications. All the Puritans and the worthies down the years said Genesis 31 is the beginning of the prototype of the Lord's table. We, we were at loggerheads with our God. And he drew near to us. The picture isn't perfect, but it's a parallel picture. And the altar is raised. Christ is our altar. The one that made peace with us. And when the agreement of peace is made, conversion, from then on, people are to witness that the animosity is over. And what happens? They did eat there together. They broke bread, the sign of fellowship, sign of an agreement being made and reconciliation. That's what the Lord's table is. It's a covenant. It's a memorial. It is breaking of bread to show reconciliation, hostility over and ended. Let me turn you to a second scripture. I think this is even more Incredible. Turn over to Exodus. Exodus chapter 24. This needs a little bit of explanation before we read from verse 7. Moses is called up the mountain. He's got to go alone. Verse 1. Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders are to stay at the bottom of the mountain. This is far too significant. For anyone else to go with Moses, Moses is going as a sort of intermediary. God is going to reveal to him 
this covenant and the promises and the commandments. That's what it tells us. The others are to wait and worship afar off. But as we read down verse 3, Moses comes alone. In verse 3, and Moses came and told all the people, the wor- all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice. So God has spoken to Moses. He said, these are the commandments. They're recorded in Exodus 20 through to 22. And he goes down and he writes them overnight and he tells the people, this is what God said to me. This is the covenant that he has promised. And the people say, all the words which the Lord hath said, we will do. The people are entering into a covenant together. Verse 4, he's written them down in the morning and he goes down the mountain and they gather together sacrifices. They're going to make a peace offering, burnt offerings. Verse 5, verse 6, Moses takes the animals And there's going to be a lot of blood, so much blood, it has to be trapped and stored in basins, multiple basins. And half the blood is sprinkled upon an altar, another altar, another memorial, another place of worship where they come together and where covenant relationships are made. And verse 7 He took the book of the covenant. It was probably more likely a stone or something else that he's written on. And he reads in the audience of the people and they said, again, notice this, all that the Lord hath said, verse 7, will we do and be obedient. Covenant language. The people, they hear what God has said to Moses And they said it once and they say it again. We will obey. We make our pledge to be obedient, to be clean, to be holy, to be pure, to live the lives that God wants us to live. So, the covenant picture. Is that the end? Well, Moses, verse 8, he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. Normally it's on the altar. But Moses now sprinkles this blood of the offerings that have been made. And he says, behold, the blood of the covenant. Very significant. Think of those words that we've read already. As the Lord Jesus instituted the new covenant. Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. This is grace. Christ is prefigured. The blood is speaking of the Saviour. And one day his blood, it won't be sprinkled on the altar. It will be sprinkled upon the people, all those that come and pledge obedience to God. And say to him, yes, Lord, we turn from our old lives. We repent and from now on we will obey. And the Lord sprinkles us with his blood. But that's not the remarkable thing yet. Let's look at verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, 
and 70 of the elders. Now, it's not just Moses. It's the whole band, carefully chosen and selected. And look at this verse. This is one of the most remarkable verses in the whole Bible. Verse 10, Exodus 24. And they saw the God of Israel. We pause. Did they really see God? Or was it the human form of God? Was this a theophany, an appearance of God as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel did in Ezekiel 1? They saw the God of Israel. It's implying it's the human form. It's a pre-incarnate Christ. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work, a pavement, a blue, sapphire, see-through, transparent pavement. And as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. They've come together. They've made a covenant. They've pledged their obedience. They've been covered with the blood. And now, a special selected band not everybody, but only those that have entered a covenant relationship with their God and pledge their obedience are invited. And they're invited into the very presence of God. And they see a form of him. The term sapphire stone is designed to show grandeur and beauty and splendor something we can't quite conceive. It's of great spiritual significance. It's pointing forward, of course, to Christ in all his preciousness, the sapphire stones, in his clearness for beauty and transparency, clearly speaking of Christ. Well, the transaction, the covenant seems to be over. But the Lord says no. Now that you've pledged your allegiance to me, you've come and made that commitment, that covenant has been entered into, now I will give you special assurance. You will draw near to me in a way that you never have before. And with the exception of Moses, who had seen in the burning bush an appearance of Christ, they would never see again. Until eternity, they see Christ, verse 11, and upon the nobles, probably referring to the 70 elders of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. They came before him, guilty sinners, and he doesn't touch them because they're covered with the blood. Also, they saw God. Do you know, you have to pause this is human, human beings coming before God, seeing a sight which is extraordinary for beauty and for grandeur. But what does it say at the end of verse 11? And did eat and drink. Who provided the food? <coughs> Who provided what they would eat and drink? Well, the Lord did. God appeared before them. He supplied all their needs. This is a precious forecast or prophecy, we could say, of the highest earthly privilege 
that men and women would ever know. They've had an appearance of God himself. Heaven has been opened. They have access to the presence of God. They have a sight of Christ in all his beauty and clearness. And then the Lord doesn't lay a hand upon them, even though they're sinners, because they're covered by the blood, and they do eat and they drink. That's the Lord's Supper. Back in Exodus chapter 24, isn't this wonderful to see? Have you ever seen that before? This is the Lord's Supper in figurative form. Well, we go forward to Leviticus. You don't need to spend long on this because you'll know this. Leviticus 23. And here we have in this chapter, you don't need to read it now, the seven festivals recorded, the seven meals, the fellowship meals, all for different reasons, but some of them overlap. You have the Passover here in verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord, even the holy gatherings, the holy convocations, the calling together, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons in the fourteenth day of the first month at even, commemorating when the Lord and his angel protected every home that exercised faith and put the blood of the Lamb on the lintels of the doors of the homes that they lived in. And they were to commemorate the Passover. That's the first. Then you have unleavened bread, the two tumbled one into the other. The feast of first fruits, the feast of weeks of Pentecost, the feast of trumpets, the day of atonement, and the feast of booze. Feast, feast, feast. A gathering together, seven of them, recorded for the children of Israel this holy nation that he was in a covenant relationship with, they were to come annually to keep the Passover, annually to keep the other six feasts. What's this all about? When you are in covenant relationship with God, and he was with his people in the Old Testament, we come together often as often as we possibly can. And we in the New Testament, we come together to remember what all of these seven feasts spoke of. Christ. Let me give you one of them. What's the unleavened bread? No yeast. Yeast stands for sin, impurity, defilement. And they were to have a feast where there was to be no yeast, no sin. Who is the unleavened bread? Christ and his life given for us. The yeastless bread of the bread of life, even the Lord Jesus. So the Passover was to be kept and these other reminders, special reminders, tokens, helps, emblems, visual aids to remind us of what Christ would do in those days and what Christ has done for us. Well, let's turn to the New Testament. We don't need to look at all the verses, but if you're taking notes, some of you are tonight, we remember just as a point, Christ kept the Passover. John chapter 2, verse 23. 
chapter 4, verse 45, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 4. Don't need to look at them. The references are there on the recording. Christ kept the Passover. It was recorded in four different places in John's Gospel. Why is that significant? Everything Christ did is significant. He was setting a pattern. Four occasions he keeps the Passover. But I want us to look at Luke chapter 22 as we begin to look at the Lord's Supper. And this is where we'll focus our thinking for the remainder of our time. Luke 22. We often read this. We try to vary which texts we read around the Lord's table. There's so many that we can look at, but here's one of them. Luke 22, and let's read from verse 14. And when the hour was come, he sat down. The context is that the Lord has organised everything. Verse 7. This is contemporaneous with their remembrance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread when the Passover lamb was to be killed, verse 7. And now notice verse 8, Christ says, Peter, John, you go, you prepare. He's giving the instructions. He tells them where to go, what to do, who to invite. This is richly significant. This wasn't just made up. This wasn't a holy free-for-all. No, The Lord Jesus is going to institute the Lord's Supper and he knows where, he knows when, he knows the place exactly and he sends his disciples and says to them, go and prepare us the Passover. Who's the us? All those that had made a pledge of obedience to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, his disciples. But you say, well, that includes Judas. Well, yes, it does. But he was a disciple only so that the scripture could be fulfilled. But all the other disciples were genuine believers, followers of Christ. So this is very important. Christ does the organizing. He does the inviting. He sets the time. Look at verse 15. I think this is very deep. We can only begin to scratch the surface. Christ says to them, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It was laid upon Christ's heart. The translators tell us that the words Desire and desire, quoted twice, are very close to the original. It expresses something that you can't quite put into human language. This is Christ before his agony, Christ before his suffering, saying he yearns. He desires to be with his family, those closest friends, and to sit round the same table and to sup with them before he suffers. And he wants them somehow to enter into what he's about to suffer. With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. He didn't need to do that. Why didn't he just take himself away? 
into a quiet place as he contemplated his death. But no, he needed to fellowship with his disciples. He needed to convey to them what he was going to go through, the agony. Verse 16, I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof. This will be his final meal. The final time that he takes sustenance of a human form. I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he does the organising, he does the inviting, he sets the time, he's got this meal in his heart, it's something he has to do, he wants to do, he needs to be with his people because he's in covenant relationship with them. They are his brethren. This will be a family meal. They'll come together. He's laid the room out, as it were. He's determined every detail, who will be there and who will not be there. And he wants them to eat together. We read in 1 Corinthians 11 that we are to eat together. Now that's a problem, isn't it? Covid, we couldn't share a cup. And when diseases and illnesses spread, some people find that slightly abhorrent. To have one cup and to share it, so we revert to a small cup. But it's our practice here that we drink together and that we eat together. Because that's what the Lord laid down. We are to eat and drink together. It's the family picture and I'm stressing it. So we gain insights here into what the Saviour went through. And isn't that what the Lord's Supper is about? It's about having an insight into the cost, the extraordinary cost of what Christ did for each one of his children. I quote a verse of a hymn. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Do you know that's what the Lord's Supper is about? In heaven, the Lamb will be all the glory. We come round the Lord's table. (coughs) What is it? (coughs) Emblems? They're not important. They're just pictures. They're certainly not the actual body and blood of Christ, as many believed for hundreds of years, they're just emblems. The Lamb is all the glory. The Lamb, all these Old Testament pictures of eating together and the blood being shed upon the 70 and Moses and Aaron and his sons, they speak of Christ. The Lamb is all the glory. Well, three lessons for us tonight as we draw this to a conclusion we notice that Christ is the host he's also the one that does the inviting but did you notice as well he's also the meal because he's given his life and he's given his blood that's very deep he's the one that invites he's the host 
that organises the meal, but we also remember him as we gather together around the table. Three things for us to take away. This is about covenant renewal. It's not a mournful, solemn memorial. We don't go and reenact the death of Christ. Christ has once died. Roman Catholics, I'm afraid, they celebrate the Mass. It's a reenactment of Christ's death. We can't do that. We come and remember that Christ has died and doesn't need to die again. So we come in covenant renewal. We've made a covenant if we're converted. And we come and we're lost in love and wonder at all that the Saviour has done. His obedience and his pledge to save us, to keep us, to take us to glory. So what do we do when we come and renew this covenant? We make our pledge of obedience to Christ, to obey his laws. That's what they did in the Old Testament. We desire that our love for Christ would be rekindled and we remind ourselves that we're in a covenant one with the other. That's what a church is. Members who've been saved by Christ's blood, that want to identify with him and bind themselves together in a covenant relationship and pledge to one another. Why is the Lord's table only for members? People ask me that question often. And the answer is, you need to be in a covenant relationship. <coughs> You need to have made a public witness declaration that you are for Christ and that you identify with this local people. You must be in unity with what's taught, with what's practised. How can you come round the Lord's table when you're not in agreement one with the other? This is a fellowship meal. This is of brethren and sisters who are united together and they say, I love Christ. I love his word. I can meet around this table in a fellowship meal together. I'm in agreement. What happens if we're not? Well, we read it, 1 Corinthians 11. We examine ourselves. If you've got a problem with me and I've got a problem with you, it must be sorted out before we come round this table. We can't possibly, that would be hypocrisy, to come before the Lord's table not having sorted things out between husband and wife, between fellow believer, because we're pledged to obey. I will obey, that's what they said, and that's what we say when we come around the Lord's table. So it's covenant renewal, it's the family covenant of believers only. So clearly taught in the Old Testament, not a free-for-all. You go to the Church of England, you turn up, the wafer will be handed out, or whatever it is, to anybody. No questions asked. Anybody. It's not the pattern. Who did the Lord invite? His disciples. Who did Moses keep? The Old Testament figure and picture of the Lord's table with that special group. Others were not invited. Speaking of 
the fact that this is an intimate family meal, a family meal of brothers and sisters together who are united in doctrine and practice. There's one more thing. Are we walking before the Lord? Are we walking uprightly? If somebody isn't, if they're walking a disorderly life, we have to say, sadly, no, don't come for a time. You need to put right. We can't have sin in the camp. And then finally, we remember the Lord Jesus said this was a commandment. How often should it be? Once a year? I don't think that's enough, personally. Every week? Well, some do. But it shouldn't become overly familiar. Twice a month, once a month, I think that's a good pattern but these are preferences I have heard pastors say it should be every time you meet well I can't go quite there but it should be regularly and we shouldn't miss it we should do everything that we possibly can what value do you put on your salvation that's the question the Lord has provided this meal a family fellowship meal would we come and do this in remembrance of him? Would we put a high value upon what Christ has done for us individually, sprinkling that blood upon us so that we can draw near and his hand doesn't touch us and we can come into the presence of God and almost, as it were, see a sapphire pavement and have a knowledge and a presence of Christ before us well what a precious reminder the lord's supper is and each time we come we should be renewing our covenant and our pledge to christ in obedience and in love for our family spiritual family members that we have an obligation to look out for one another to notice if anybody's missing and they need our care and our support. This is the picture.